here this morning. We are doing one more addendum on the series that we ran this fall on what does the Bible say about a variety of difficult and controversial topics. Next week, we will be starting a series in the life of David, looking not only of the events of David's life, but looking at psalms that David wrote that corresponded to those events. We'll be getting that next week, and that will carry us for quite some time. Um, One more announcement that I forgot to mention is that tonight our big gathering is starting back up at 5.30 this evening. That has our kids club, middle school youth group, as well as our community group, and Sonship is starting tonight. Um, Big gathering starts at 5.30. If you're interested in being in Sonship, that starts at 5, and we do have a couple slots left if you're interested in participating in that. Here, as we go to God's Word this morning, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do ask that you would speak truth, that you would speak light, and that your gospel would speak to our hearts here this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and our Defender, amen. It is indeed uh, just a great privilege to have Patty here with us. Just thank you again for spending the time with us this morning. CareNet is a ministry that we at Cornerstone have long supported, and we've supported it because it's a ministry that is actively bringing the grace of God, the hope of the gospel, and the love of Jesus to women and men and to babies in our community. And we as Christians, we as people, even those of us who are not Christians, have an important opportunity, but not only an opportunity, a responsibility to talk and to speak and to bring the hope and good news of Jesus, particularly as it bears on this issue of early life. You know, I stand as one who is a member of a generation in which over a third of my generation has been aborted. And also, as one, you know, as a man, as a part of a generation where close to its estimated 40% of women have had an abortion. And so as we come to this topic here this morning, let me just state up front that I am assuming that this is true for many people in Cornerstone. I am assuming that it is true that there are men and women here who not only have had abortions, but have supported people in having abortions. And I know this not only as I assume it because God is bringing people into our church, but also because God is a God of grace, and there are many in this congregation whom God has redeemed um, from the pain of abortions that they have had, from abortions that they have supported. And God is a God of grace, and he's been working through those situations. And so as we come to this topic here this morning, and maybe you've heard messages on this topic before, I do just want you to know that I am addressing this, assuming that there are many people here who have had abortions, have supported abortions, and certainly that every one of us here knows people who have done so or have supported them. And when it comes to this issue of abortions in early life, um, it is not an indifferent issue. It is a very polarizing topic. And as we come to it, what I would urge us to do this morning, as we do on every issue, is to pursue truth and to courageously follow that truth wherever it leads us. And when it comes to this subject, what that means is that for some, to courageously follow truth might mean that they need to admit wrong. It might mean that they need to admit that they have done wrong. And it might mean that they need to embrace the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ in their life. But when it comes to a topic like this, it is important for us to pursue truth and then to build our lives upon it. Because it is wrong, it is a wrong and dangerous approach that many of us take to difficult topics. 
And the wrong and dangerous approach is to like an outcome, and because we like that outcome or want that outcome, to then go back and to justify and to assume that the decisions that led to that outcome are correct. It's a a little bit like if my grandfather gave me an antique car, and it was a car that I loved and that everyone in our family knew that we had that was in there and was something very special to our family and was so excited that he finally passed it on. But then as he passed on this car to me, you know, and his neighbors began to pull out news articles of pictures of this car that had gotten stolen. It was the exact same model as the car that was given to me. In fact, it had the exact same license plate tags. And on the day that it was stolen, it was that very next day that there was a birthday party in which my grandfather gave this car to my grandmother. It would behoove me to follow truth and to say, wait a second, is it possible that this car that I have is actually stolen and I therefore now need to do right to the one that it was stolen from? It would be very wrong reasoning to say, well, I like this car, and I like my grandfather, and my grandfather hasn't ever done anything wrong, and he's such a loving and caring person, therefore he must have done right, and therefore these news articles about this therefore must be wrong because I really like the outcome. And so it is when it comes to this that we need to pursue truth. And so I'd encourage you here this morning to listen to this, not through the lens of your own experience, nor through the lens of your own decisions, or the decisions that family members or friends have made, but rather that we would pursue truth and look at it through the lens of Scripture. And my goal here this morning is to clarify the argument. And for those of us here who are Christians, my goal is to clarify an argument to help you understand and articulate something that you need to be prepared to compassionately and gracefully articulate. These are arguments that you should be able to readily articulate and respond to. And if this is a topic that you are indifferent to or opposed to about uh, protection of the unborn, then I would urge you to listen to this and and afterwards and to engage and to talk with me about this issue. Because when it comes to the aspect of early life, we believe that the Bible teaches that it is unjust and wrong to take the life of an innocent human being, that that is wrong to do, that to take the life of an innocent human being. And when it comes to the question of early life and the question of abortion, there really is only one question that matters. The question that matters is not the role of government. It's not the role of women's of a, of a privacy. It is not the role of personhood. The one question that matters in this discussion is this. Is the unborn a human being? Is the unborn a human being? And it is the only question that matters. Because if the unborn is a human being, killing him or her to the benefit of others is a serious moral wrong. But if the unborn is not a human being, it would require no more justification to have an abortion than to have a wart removed. And it really comes down to that question. Is the unborn a human being? I believe that the Bible's teaching on this is unequivocally clear. Psalm 139 states this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written 
every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Each and every person, the Bible teaches, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of nationality, regardless of creed, regardless of physical capacity, let's even add on, regardless of various orientations in their life, each and every person is a human being who is created in the image of God and therefore bestowed with glory, with honor, with dignity, with inherent worth and value. And yes, that includes you. Regardless of what people have said about you, it includes you that you are endowed with inherent worth and value. And it includes every other human being, whether born or unborn. And differences of size, how developed a person is, the environment in which they are, their, how dependent they are on another for another person's life, do not alter the truth that they are created in the image of God and therefore have inherent worth and value. There are today four common arguments that I think try to highlight what I believe to be non-essential differences about this question about whether or not the unborn are indeed humans or not. What I'm going to share with you today is I didn't generate it. It was originally developed by a man by the name of Dr. Stephen Schwartz. It was popularized by a, a man by the name of Scott Klusendorf who spoke at Karenet a couple years ago. But five, um, and he's going to use the acronym here, uh, SLED, to help understand these and a helpful reminder of these non-essential differences that when it comes to the question of the unborn. And the areas that addresses are size of the individual, level of development and awareness, the environment in which they are, and degree of dependency. We're going to go through these this morning. They were the ones that originally developed it. I'm going to be expanding some of the ideas that they came up with um, here this morning. The first area for us to look at, does the size of the individual affect their humanity? Yes, it is true that a fertilized egg is smaller than a blastocyst, which is smaller than an embryo, which is smaller than a fetus, which is smaller than a newborn baby, which is smaller than a toddler, which is smaller than a fourth grader, which is smaller than a 40-year-old's. Yes, a new, a, yes, a fertilized egg, yes, the unborn is smaller than adults and than adult people. But my question for you is, why is that relevant? Why does size matter? People will say, well, the unborn, particularly at the early stages of life, they're just a clump of cells. Well, yes, they are. And so are you. And you are just a bigger clump of cells. But are you really prepared to say, do you really want to say that larger people are more valuable or more human than small people? Men are generally larger than women. But that doesn't mean that they deserve more rights or it makes them more human. Size does not equate to humanity, nor does size or the number of cells equate to a human's value. Now, you may say, come on now, this is, I mean, really at the early stages of, of, life, of, of after conception, it's just a group of cells. I mean, can you really say that a single cell can really be a human being? 
Well, for a while, it was common to view the earliest stages of human life as, and to call them, refer to them as a pre-embryo, that they were not yet a person, not yet a human being. However, scientifically, both the Human Embryo Research Panel of NIH and the National Bioethics Advisory Commission rejected the term. And they described the earliest stages of human life as a living organism and, quote, a developing form of human life. And our contention is that abortion kills a human life. Now, it doesn't take an expert in the birds or the bees to understand when life begins. Nonetheless, here's an expert. This is testimony at the Senate, U.S. Senate Committee hearing by Drs. Michelin M. Matthews Rolf of Harvard Medical School, who states, It is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. And it does beg the question, if at conception it is not a human being, a distinct organism from the mother who has its own DNA, who has its own genetically unique uh, code, if it is not a human being, then what is it? If it's not a member of the species of Homo sapiens, then what is it a member of? What? I mean, it's not a giraffe, it's not a monkey, it's not a fish. What is it? And the reality is that, yes, it is a genetically, at conception, it becomes a genetically unique member of the species Homo sapiens, and it looks just like you did at one day old. Size is irrelevant to its humanity. Size is irrelevant to whether or not it is a genetically unique human being. That's the scientific aspect of it. But biblically, let's look at it for understanding from this perspective. We just celebrated Christmas. We celebrated God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, God become flesh. Well, when did God become man? Was it at Christmas? Was it at Jesus' birth? Was it at his circumcision when he was eight days old? When did God become man? Was it at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon him? No, God became man in the announcement to to Mary. When the angel declares, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. When did Jesus, when did God become man? At the incarnation, which was when? At conception. You will conceive. The Holy Spirit will come will come upon you. And he says to, the angel says to Joseph that that which is conceived by Mary is done by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus became incarnate. God became man when Mary conceived from conception, from, yes, microscopic conception. And the size and the number of cells is irrelevant as to whether or not God became man at conception. And it is irrelevant as to whether or not Somebody is a human being. That's the issue of size. Second issue is level of development and awareness. Yes, it is true that embryos and fetuses are less developed than the adults that they will come by, become. But again, why is level of development or self-awareness relevant? Four-year-old girls are less developed than 14-year-old girls. 
are older children more human than their younger siblings? A teenager might say, yes, they actually are, a little bit less human. But we know differently. Similarly, some people would argue that it is self-awareness that makes someone human. But if that is true, if the issue is self-awareness is what makes someone human, if that is true, then newborn babies do not qualify as human beings because psychologists tell us they lack self-awareness. That six-week-old infants lack the immediate capacity for performing certain human mental functions. It's not just them, but so do the reversibly comatose. So does each and every one of us. When we are asleep, we lack self-awareness. So do people who are suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Is it okay for someone to kill you in your sleep because you are not personally aware of it? No. Level of awareness is irrelevant. How about degree of development? Would you be prepared to go along with ethicist Joseph Fletcher? He's a popular ethicist in the 20th century. His teaching is prevalent in most universities across our country, who also held to the position that if someone had an IQ below 20 or 40, they should be declared as non-persons if they have an IQ below 20 or 40. Would you be willing to do that? Again, the level of development and the level of self-awareness is irrelevant to whether or not they are a human being. And the Word of God, I believe, uh, corroborates this in a different way. Because the Word of God actually goes so far as to assert the culpability and the guilt of the unborn. Notice what Psalm 51 says, David declares, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. When was he sinful from? From the time my mother conceived me. And yes, this gets into the doctrine of original sin, which we're not going to get into all the implications of that here. But what is David identifying? That from the time of conception, there was personal culpability. There was personal guilt from conception. And the issue of self-awareness at conception is irrelevant to the culpability of the individual. To the level of development is irrelevant as to the guilt of the individual that happens of being born from a sinful person being born as a sinful person. How does the level of development and the level of a person's awareness affect their humanity? It doesn't. It just simply does not. Third area is their environment. That where you are has no bearing on who you are. Does your humanness change depending upon where you are? When you cross the street or roll over in bed, are you more or less human? If you are a scuba diver and living in an environment, and currently in an environment that is inhospitable to human life, does that make you any less human because of the environment in which you are currently in? If it does not, how can a journey of eight inches down the birth canal suddenly change someone from not a human being to now a human being? If the unborn are not already human, 
merely changing their location, merely changing their environment, does not and cannot make them human. Some people put the argument in a different location, and they say, well, that's one thing. But there's a difference between the uh, fertilized egg, a, a multi-cell, uh, you know, a pluripotent cell, uh, a blastocyst that is in the fallopian tube before being implanted in the uterus. And you know, some people might say, well, you know, there are many fertilized eggs that don't implant, that don't implant and develop into an embryo and don't develop into a baby. But the question still stands, how does that matter? How is that relevant? How does the environment whether conducive to human life or unconducive to human life, affect the humanity of the individual? How does it affect whether or not it is a genetically distinct organism, a human being? How does the environment that the individual has found change that? It does not. Again, we turn our attention to the incarnation. Was Jesus any less fully God and fully man at the incarnation than he was at his crucifixion? Was he any less fully God in his mother's womb when Mary walks to uh, her cousin and says that the baby in her leaps within her because her Lord has come close to her? Is Jesus any less God in utero than he is ex-utero? No, he's not. In the environment that an individual has found does not change that truth. The third area, or excuse me, fourth area, is degree of dependency. And the argument with this one is that someone is not a human being if they're wholly dependent upon another person. Actually, that's not completely fair. The argument is that they're not a person. They may be a human, but they're not a person if they're wholly dependent upon on another human being. But what I've been responding to here is, is not the issue of personhood, but really the assertion that is the unborn a human being and the belief that it is wrong to kill innocent human beings. And the question on this one is, does a person's level of dependency on other people make them less human or not human than someone who is independent of them? And the challenge here is this, is that if viability is what makes us human, then all who are dependent on insulin or a kidney transplant from another human being, the argument would continue that they're not human. May we kill them all. That people who cannot generate their own blood and are wholly dependent on transfusions from other people are they somehow less human because they are wholly dependent for their life on other human beings? Indeed, in some third world countries where third world countries require children to breastfeed because formula is not available, can a mother kill her newborn son because he depends on her for bodily nutrition? Take it slightly differently. Imagine that you alone witnessed a toddler falling into a swimming pool, would you be justified to walk away because he depended upon you for his survival? Of course not. Degree of dependency has nothing to do with the humanity of an individual, and quite the contrary is the view of Scripture. Because as Christians, and for those of us here who are Christians, and not all of us are, I understand that, 
But as Christians, we worship the God of the Bible, the God who declares himself to be the father of the fatherless, who hears the cry of the oppressed, the God who defends the cause of the weak and vulnerable, the God who formed us in our mother's womb. We worship the God who sustains us in everything, every moment, by the word of his power, upon whom we are wholly and completely dependent for every breath of our life. And we worship the God who, when we deserved his wrath and punishment as the just penalty for our own sinfulness, we worship the God who would have been completely right and justified to turn and walk away from us, yet instead, who becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ at the Incarnation, who not only becomes man but takes our guilt, takes our sin, takes our death so that we might be rescued from death. Not only that will we be rescued from death, but so that we might have life and have life abundantly and have life eternally. This is the God we worship and the God who says to us, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. And the critical question in all of these issues in the abortion debate, the, politi- the political debate of which we are about to be inundated once again in this political cycle, the one critical question that matters is, is the unborn a human being? And the only logical answer to that question is yes, absolutely. And let me reiterate that if you are here this morning and you are struggling with the pain and the heartache, and the guilt and shame of having an abortion, of supporting an abortion, of having multiple abortions, there are many men and women in this church who would be honored to journey with you. And let me go a step further. If for some of you that's too personal to engage with someone who you might see on a weekly basis, CareNet has groups and counseling groups and support groups and people that you can talk to that provide post-abortion counseling services, that you would find hope and healing through Jesus Christ, that you would find life abundantly through the gospel of Jesus Christ, because where sin and guilt and shame abounds, God's grace abounds more. And these arguments that the unborn are human beings and that their size and their level of dependency or their level of development the environment in which they are and their degree of dependency are irrelevant to the question of whether or not the unborn are human beings. And this is a truth that must be communicated. It is a truth that we must communicate. It is a truth that we must communicate with grace and with love. And yet it is a truth that we must communicate not only with grace and love, but because of God's grace and love. Let us pray to that end here this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we praise you, as Psalm 139 says, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, we praise you because you had all of the days of our lives held in your hand, and that you saw our unformed substance, 
you knit us together in our mother's womb. Lord, I thank you for that truth that encourages us that no matter what we face, no matter what we're going through, no matter where we are on this earth, no matter how much we struggle, no matter whether or not our mind falls apart when we get older, you have us, and you watch us, and you know us. And you have bestowed us with honor and dignity because you have made us and each and every one of us and each and every human being in your image and bestowed us with honor and dignity. And Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the one through whom you are redeeming, renewing, and restoring that image and bringing hope and joy to darkness, healing to pain, hope to brokenness, and love to those who feel that they've never had that. Father, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work to apply these amazing truths of who you are to our lives. Father, we pray for those who have had abortions or encourage them, or that, that they would not seek to assuage their guilt by denying the truth, but rather that they would find freedom and forgiveness from their guilt through Jesus Christ. Lord, you alone can heal. You alone can save. You alone can give life abundantly. And we ask that you would do that in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. God become flesh, our Lord and our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.